welcome to the Old Testament Reading Podcast. I'm your host, Joel, and today we're focused on Exodus 7 through 12. You can find and subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. All the links are in the show notes. If a question comes up during the course of your reading, please feel free to ask it at bit.ly slash ask hyphen OT. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash capital A lowercase S-K hyphen capital O capital T. Uh, I want to name real briefly that uh, my voice is a little bit under the what it usually is. Um, this week I've been more and more in the office and that means I've been talking with people, uh, which is something I haven't been doing for a while. For those of you who are working from home, you may know kind of what's, what's going on with that, that it's hard to get back in the rhythm of talking with folks and my voice is just tired. So please pardon the hoarseness that you're hearing. I'm also recording this in a car, uh, not driving, of course, because safety, but uh, recording it in a car so that uh, I'm, I'm able to get um, some sort of decent recording. Uh, I'm traveling at the moment. So again, please forgive that stuff. Uh, for those reasons, this podcast may be a touch shorter than usual. So Exodus 7 through 12 is what we're looking at today, and Exodus 7 through 12 focuses on the power of this God who has claimed the children of Israel. This God appeared to Moses in the burning bush and promised to deliver the Israelites from Pharaoh with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And we know this, but we don't know how God is going to go about doing this. What will God do? How will God liberate the people of Israel? And I think these six chapters are as frightening as they are comforting. We see a God who's willing to do anything for us, willing to go the distance. We also uh, see the depth of God's commitment to liberation, but we also see the extent to which God will use God's power to wreak destruction on all those who would stand in the way of the liberation of God's people. There are several areas of study that uh, folks start in Exodus 7 through 12 and devote their lives to. I mean, we have stuff like uh, uh, the idea of the anti-creation feel of the plagues, where they spiraled Egypt from order into chaos, that these plagues are undoing the work of creation in some sense. We also have the division and the logic of the plagues. Some people who argue that the plagues could have been mostly natural events, and other people claim, well, no, the plagues were designed to demonstrate Yahweh's power over Egypt's gods, and still others uh, anchor their understanding of the plagues in what the text says, that I may show Pharaoh my power, that I may lead my people out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And finally, there's the questions of human freedom and divine intervention as we wrestle with what it means for God to harden Pharaoh's heart. We'll look at each of these in turn today. We'll begin with the anti-creation feel of the plagues. So in creation, we saw in Genesis 1 and 2 how God ordered the world for the flourishing of all things. At the end of every day of creation in Genesis 1, God said it was good. Tov is the Hebrew word. And this serves, uh, you know, a couple of purposes. In Hebrew poetry, this was sort of the, the end of a line, tov. It signaled the beginning of a new line. But what's more, once God created 
all that God had created, including Adam and Eve, God looked at the creation and called it very good. Now in the plagues, nobody could look at what the plagues do and say, oh, that's very good. No, instead, plagues uh, descend the creation into disorder. Without the life-giving water of the Nile, for example, if it, when that gets transformed into blood, into death, well, then Egypt has nothing to stand on. It's, it's no longer creation that brings life. It's anti-creation that brings death is the result of these plagues. Human beings are attacked by the created order through frogs and gnats, flies and locusts, disease. It's terrifying, and that's because it's supposed to be. It's supposed to show that as we rebel against God, the created order undoes itself. That when Paul would say later in, in the Acts of the Apostles that um you know, God is, is the one who holds all things together. God, Paul actually meant that, that um, creation is held together by the relationship that God has with creatures. Now, <clears throat> I want to be careful with this claim. There are several pastors and religious leaders who would argue that natural disasters are caused by sin. Many of these sorts of pastors and figureheads will point to stuff like Hurricane Katrina and claim that, well, if America would just honor God and turn away from gay, sin, gay marriage and abortion and you know other sins, that, uh, well, Hurricane Katrina would never have happened, that we wouldn't have to suffer at the hands of natural disasters. Now, like I said, I want to be careful because that... I reject that explanation. I don't think that does justice to the work of God and to how God deals with sin. However, uh, I do think that there's a kernel of truth in this. It's not that America needs to turn away from gay marriage or that America needs to turn away from abortions. It, not so much there. The kernel of truth lies in, in this. When we abuse fellow human beings creation itself dies. When we um, oppress fellow human beings, what we're doing is we are taking the image of God as seen in our siblings, and we are rejecting it. We're saying, God, you have no say over this person. God, uh, I don't care that you call this person very good. I'm going to treat them like an object. So the forces of anti-creation are, to some degree, God's judgment on oppression and bondage. The forces of anti-creation are, to some degree, God's tools of liberation. Now, does this mean that every natural disaster uh, has an explanation in how we treat our fellow human beings? Well, not necessarily. And some of these things are systemic, too. When we look at covid we know that um, there were epidemiologists and disease specialists who were predicting the coming of such a pandemic and asking us to prepare ourselves. And many of us, uh, not, not the average Joes, but many of, of the folks in government couldn't, um, couldn't afford the time or the cost of preparing ourselves for something like a COVID. And in doing so, um, rejected the image of God in fellow citizens and fellow human beings by not preparing for it. So 
These forces of anti-creation we still see at work in the world today, but there was something special about what happened 3,000 years ago in Egypt. So the plagues that were sent to Egypt had a very rigid formulaic structure. Um, they, you can break them up into three triads with then the 10th plague kind of standing alone. You can break them up into duos. Um, there are a number of ways that, that we can kind of look at these plagues. Um, the first three are sort of God's warm-up act, you can think. These are the three that the magicians um, uh, try and and figure out how to do and in some cases are successful the magicians pharaoh's magicians can turn more water into blood they can uh, make more frogs appear and and both of these things are sort of like a well yeah so what like i'm glad you can do it but where's the remedy for this plague and for the magicians not to be able to undo these plagues well that's what will lead them later on down the line to say this is the finger of god then the next three plagues, there's an escalation. And, and by the way, the, the, the splitting up the plagues into sets of three also has the nice uh, side effect of having the middle plague in each set of three being one where Moses uh, goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh asks for God to show mercy. Moses relents and prays for the plague to go away. And then Pharaoh goes back on what he said he was going to do. Um, and then the third plague in each set of three comes without warning. So looking just at the first set of three, um, the frogs are, are a plague that Moses and Pharaoh barter about. Uh, Moses asks Pharaoh, well, when do you want these frogs to go away? Pharaoh says such and such a time. Moses says done. And then Pharaoh reneges on what he promised. Um, and then the, the, the plague after the frogs, I believe the gnats, <clears throat> uh, uh, some of you may have a translation that translates it lice, but, the gnats come without warning. Moses doesn't appear before Pharaoh and warn him about that. And um, so we've got the magicians with the first set of three plagues. And then God begins to escalate things in the second set of three plagues and begins to show a distinction between Goshen, where the Israelites live, and the rest of Egypt. Before finally, um, the final set of three plagues bring just terrifying destruction with hail, locusts darkness. This all leads up to the death of the firstborn. Now we can also look at the plagues uh, in, in, in another way, in pairs, where turning the Nile into blood leads to the frogs coming out. The gnats and the flies are both swarms that come upon the people of Egypt. Um, the destruction of livestock and the boils um, are both hitting against uh, living things and against the animals of Egypt. Uh, the hail and the locusts destroy all of the crops of Egypt, whereas the darkness and the death of the firstborn bring hopelessness to Egypt. So there's a couple of ways that we can see patterns in these sets of plagues. There's a logic to them that even in this terrifying act of anti-creation that God is thoughtful in, in, in what God is doing. In looking at the plagues, there are some who would argue for some natural explanation of how these plagues came to be. Uh, I've linked 
um, uh, an article that gives a little bit more in-depth of an understanding of what this may look like. But the, the long and short of it is that you can kind of see how one thing would lead to the next. If the Nile is completely turned to blood, well, then, yeah, the frogs are going to flee and uh, they're going to go onto the land. There won't be food for the frogs and they'll die. And if the frogs die, well, that's going to lead to uh, the, the flies and, and the gnats who the frogs otherwise would have eaten swarming and, and, you know, coming around where they wouldn't have been otherwise. And with all the death of the frogs, that might lead to disease, which would kill the other livestock, which may cause festering boils. Paired with this, 3,500 years ago, there was a gigantic volcanic explosion, the likes of which um, are, are it, it's unparalleled, really. And that could conceivably bring hail, locusts, and darkness. Some folks would also try to argue that the death of the firstborn is caused by a fungus. Now, all of these may be true, and um, there's, there's some neat opportunities to do science and integrate science with their faith. But let's not get confused about these plagues. These plagues are also the hand of God to uh, liberate the people of Egypt, or excuse me, the people of Israel, um, that maybe God did use natural phenomena uh, for these things. But there's some difficulty in explaining how these plagues would have hit Egypt and not Goshen. Um, there's an explanation for how the Nile got turned to blood as well, that it may have dried up and that there may have been a fungus on top of it that turned it red. Um, again, what, whether that brings you comfort or not, do know that God is, is freely behind these plagues, whether or not they are natural. There's also uh, an attempt by some scholars, and I've linked a, a, a paper on this below, uh, in the show notes, there's an attempt by some scholars uh, to say that, well, these plagues show Yahweh's supremacy over each of Egypt's gods, uh, where, you know, the God, uh, there's one God of Egypt that watches over the Nile and God, Yahweh, by striking the Nile, shows that that God has no control over what that God thinks that God has control over and so on and so forth throughout the rest of the 10 plagues. And again, this is this can be kind of neat and kind of helpful in understanding uh, some of what God does, but um, it is not the sort of baseline of why God is doing what God is doing. Really, the baseline is liberation so that it, Egypt will see God's power. God will make God's power known. Which brings us to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. This is something that... Um, concerns many people who read this text. In the first six plagues, uh, uh, we're told that Pharaoh hardened his own heart or that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. But then, as we get closer and closer to the death of the firstborn, we see Yahweh, God, hardening Pharaoh's heart. And there's questions of free will and human agency here. Questions of, you know, does Pharaoh actually want to have his heart hardened. That concerned me. And what we can see, I think, is a natural thing that we've seen in our own lives, where we set our mind to something and um, 
we keep going even when we see unpleasant results. Uh, so frequently, we don't second-guess our decisions once we've made them. We just blindly blaze along, and, and that's some of what may be happening here. Where Pharaoh's heart, uh, it, it says this in Proverbs, that the heart of the ruler is in the palm of God's hand, that God directs uh, uh, the waters of the heart wherever God wills. And so while Pharaoh absolutely made the decision not to free God's people, not to liberate God's people, you know, let's, let's be clear, Pharaoh did make that decision. At the same time, this was something that even though Pharaoh was making the decision, God was still sovereign over it. That even though Pharaoh was uh, interested in hardening his own heart, God was still sovereign even over that. And I think that that's the best way of understanding what's going on in this narrative where it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, that Pharaoh had reached a point of no return. Um, we're going through a study of the book of Hebrews uh, in a Bible study I'm leading. And one of the things that we looked at in Hebrews 10, there's this uh, phrase, if we continue to sin deliberately or willfully after having received knowledge of the truth, then no sacrifice for sins is left. And there's sometimes where we do this, we know that what we're doing is wrong and we do it anyway. And we see our, our lives begin to spiral. That's what's going on with Pharaoh. He knows what he's doing is wrong and yet he can't, he can't stop doing it. It's like an addiction. The final piece of this story, and, and we, we've, there's so much to cover in the plague. So if there are things that I miss that you'd like to hear uh, covered next week, please uh, write in your question. The final thing to cover is the importance of liberation to God. Uh, later on in the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul would say in Galatians 5, It is for freedom Christ has set us free. Therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. It's for freedom that God liberates us. And this liberation, just as it happened from Egypt, happens over and over again in our lives. Uh, from sin, from addiction, from these things that are harmful to us. God will spare no expense in liberating us. And it's important, terribly important, that we embrace that liberation. This is so important that there are theologians who have structured an entire theology around liberation, particularly uh, Latino-Latina theologians and, and Black theologians in America. This is what led to Christians being some of the operative members of the Underground Railroad. Um, because Christians buy in to liberation. There's a darker side to this as well. So frequently, the Christians who buy into liberation find themselves standing in opposition to Christians who don't buy into liberation. So many people who oppose the Underground Railroad, uh, members of the Ku Klux Klan, were faithful Christians who thought that God had something to say about slavery. We need to be very careful when we speak on God's behalf for something that works against the liberating work that God is doing in people and uh, in, in, in our time today. And I'd be curious to hear where you see God's, God's liberation at work today. 
I'm grateful uh, to y'all for putting up with my voice. Um, I know that we didn't do a whole lot with the Passover, uh, with the the sacrificial lamb. There are um, there are definitely analogies there to the Christ sacrifice um, when Christ went to death for us. But um, I'm going to wrap this up uh, because uh, my voice is going and we've covered a lot of the plague. So that's all for Exodus 7 through 12. Next week, we'll read chapters 13 through 18. And like I said last week, be on the lookout over the next couple of weeks since we'll begin jumping over chapters so that we can focus strictly on the narrative of Scripture. I'll give you all another heads up uh, as we get closer. This week, we're reading through um, 13 through 18 straight through. But the week after, we'll be skipping around a little bit. For now, may God bless you in your reading of Scripture.